only announcement that I'm aware of is that on, uh, what's today, the 10th. So on the 21st of August, we're going to have our men's prayer breakfast. And, um, you know, a lot of you that are here come, and there's uh, several uh, new men in the congregation that somebody ought to invite to the men's prayer breakfast so we can figure out who they are. And um, that's the only thing that I can, I can think of is there's the men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting uh, coming up at that, uh, at that point. Let me see here. Okay. Well, we're going to have, have some fun again tonight like Sunday morning. Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we begin tonight, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared. And the operative term that we see all through the scripture isn't the word confess. It is the word cleanse. And that is the important part related to sanctification, that to come into the presence of God, we need to be cleansed. We are cleansed positionally at the moment of salvation but we still sin as pictured by dirty feet that needed to be washed, just the feet. When Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, that he said, you are all clean, all clean. They had been bathed, as it were. And that really is part of that picture of the baptism by the Holy Spirit that's related to what happens at the process of regeneration. But we need to be cleansed experientially, so that is the result of confession, acknowledgement, admission, examination, all those different words that are used. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're prepared to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's so tremendous that we can come before you. We have a high priest who was tested in all areas as we are yet without sin, therefore qualified to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that all that is left is for us to trust in him and we have everlasting life. Father, we study the scriptures and we see so many things that went on, not just in the period of the judges, but all the way through the period of the prophets, the period of the kings, the period of the divided kingdom, and we just see evidence after evidence that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things, that our tendency, our trend is to autonomy and rebellion. And Father, we pray that as we study your word, we might have the humility to submit to your authority and to trust in you. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes tonight to some of the things we study, give us insight, 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are studying in Judges, and I know that this gets redundant a little bit, and you have a tendency, as we all do, to sort of tune out because you see the same slide and you hear the same thing as I began week after week. But I once had a pastor who said that the role of the pastor is to not to teach it so you can remember it, but to teach it so you can't forget it. And if you can draw this chart of the book of Judges, 15 years from now when you're asleep or you are in the beginning stages of dementia, then I will have done my job. There are three parts to Judges. The introduction, the main body, and then these appendices at the end. The whole thing revolves around a statement that is made twice in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone means the leadership, it means the people, it means the priesthood. And so that is the structure of the book. In the introduction, it describes the mechanics of their failure, that they compromised with the world around them. They did not uh, put up a wall, a barrier, that in those days meant the annihilation of the Canaanite tribes, but they got to the point where they welcomed them and they intermarried with them and they did everything the Canaanites did, only worse. And that's what's seen in the introduction. And we are beginning the main body, the paganization of the leadership. And the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written it in such a way that we are to see certain patterns. And the pattern is that it starts off with a judge about whom nothing negative is said and ends with a judge about whom nothing positive is said. And each successive judge takes the nation further into sin and depravity and rebellion. And yet they were used by God at key points where they trusted God and God delivered the nation. And for those few moments or hours where they trusted God, they are mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith chapter. And that gives all of us great hope because we feel like many times that we just don't walk with the Lord as close as we should. And uh, it's it's going to be pretty embarrassing at the judgment seat of Christ. But if God is going to give praise to Gideon and Jephthah and Barak and Samson in Genesis 11, then maybe there's a little hope that Robbie Dean won't be kicked to the gutter. So that's the structure of the book. And then at the end, there's that horrible section in chapter 17 and 18 where we see the grandson of Moses leading the people into idolatry. And then the reaction of the people in verses 19 to 21 against the tribe of Benjamin, where the nation almost self-destructs, almost annihilates one of the tribes. So it it gets pretty, pretty bad. Now, in the last few weeks, I spent a lot of time talking about the importance of history, that how a nation handles its past, how it handles history is important. And when you're divorced from reality, so is your understanding of your past. 
And that is what we see happening in our nation. And I used an example last time from the uh, 1619 project. Talked about that this is a project that was invented out of whole cloth from the New York Times, that there have been numerous experts, scholars who've spent their lives studying slavery in the early part of the United States and in the colonies, spent uh, their careers writing and researching about uh, the attitudes of uh, those in America. And just reading through this book, he does a masterful job, and he talks about all those historians who come up and support it. And he looks at their writings. Uh, this guy has done a massive amount of, um, of research. And I came up with something that I thought was rather interesting. One of the things he does in the first chapter is he talks about what actually happened in 1619. And what happened is there was a Dutch slave, tr- slave ship, a slaver, who had uh, come from Africa and he had come across the ocean and he comes into port there at Jamestown, which at this point is only 10 years old, founded in 1609. So we're not talking about a huge number of people and a huge development. But he had some 20-plus African slaves. Some of the numbers differ a little bit here or there. And basically traded them for food and supplies, which a lot of people would say, well, they... Those Jamestown colonists bought their slaves. And, um, but at that time, if you study the literature, the word slave is not used in the sense of racial chattel slavery, lifetime slavery. Uh, it was used for indentured servants, which was a common practice. In fact, as I've read about the history of slavery, chattel slavery was probably the norm in a lot of areas up until... Uh, you get the influence of Christianity in, in Western Europe, and then you get the development of this thing called indentured servants, which is based on the model in the Mosaic Law that a person who is destitute can uh, opt to become a slave, for, but it's not for life. It's only for seven years, and so he can pay off his debts and get back on his feet, and at the end of seven years, he's set free. And if he vo- if he uses his volition to decide to be a lifetime slave, then he is marked with a a piercing in his ear. And so that indicates that he is not in his servitude involuntarily, that he's voluntarily there. And that changed things. But what happened was it in the colonies, it changes again in the 17th century, but it's ignored by the 1619 project. And uh, so Wood goes on to say that there's a lot of debate as to what happened to those 20-plus slaves, and most historians argue that they were indeed assimilated as indentured servants into the population, and after a period of time, they uh, found that that particular uh, freedom. But then I remembered something that I had heard. Uh, many years ago, and I started searching for it, and I could not find it. And then I finally found the right words to put into the search window, and I ran across an article 
that gave me more information than I expected to get from a conservative, religious, right-wing, evangelical website called the Smithsonian Magazine. And that made it even better because I'm not going to a conservative, right-wing, evangelical uh, website where they could easily be dismissed, but this was an article published in the Smithsonian uh, Magazine. And there's, I've got the um, link up there. And just summarizing it, uh, lifetime chattel slavery was not introduced into the United States until the mid part of the 17th century. It happened in the case of a black indentured servant by the name of John Kasor, who, for various reasons, was taken to court. His indenturedness was taken to court by his owner, uh, a man by the name of Anthony Johnson, a black man by the name of Anthony Johnson, a black man who came to America as a slave in 1619 and then became an indentured servant, got his freedom, had acquired land, and developed a tobacco farm. And one of the indentured servants on his farm had various problems working and other things. So Anthony Johnson took him to court so that the judge would rule, would grant that his indentured period would be for life. And that occurred in uh, around uh, 1654 or 1655. Then six years later, six or seven years later, in 1661, the Virginia Assembly passed legislation making lifetime slavery legal for everyone, white, black, or Indian, who was free to own slaves for life. Uh, along with indentured servants. So I find that interesting. That doesn't mean anything that it, this is approval, this is, makes it good, or anything like that. But to recognize the reality of history, that the claims that this country is founded on racism, that this country was founded on slavery, and that every institution is what it is because of slavery, is, is just garbage. It's made up out of whole cloth by people who are sadly motivated by hate and bitterness and vengeance. Christians have no business getting involved with these things because the motivations are all out of uh, uh, mental attitude sins, and they, they are so, so destructive. But it helps to have your facts right, and even when the Smithsonian can recognize uh, truth and report it. And this came out in 2017 when this article was published. So this it was not published in relation to this 2019 pro, uh, uh, thing at all. So just wanted to add that to last week. We're going to be looking at several things that relate to previous lessons. So we looked at Othniel. Othniel is the first judge. And covered in verses 7 to 11. And we saw that the divine indictment was that Israel did evil in the sight of God. The sight of God relates to his righteousness. His righteousness sets the standards. The righteous standards of God are uh, exhibited in the 
613 commandments of the Mosaic law. And they violated them. The very first commandment, thou shalt have no other God before me, is a violation of the whole law. Remember what James says, if you violate one part of the law, you broke the whole thing. And so they did what was evil, and evil often in Scripture is related to idolatry. It's related to, in the uh, theocratic government of, of Israel, it's related to high treason, because God is the ruler. He is the uh, king, the theocratic ruler of, of Israel. And to worship another god, give allegiance to another god, is high treason. That's why idolatry, for, uh, and for many other reasons, one of the reasons it was a capital crime. And they forgot God, which was simply an idiom for the fact that they didn't take God into account. They turned their back on him. They ignored God. And they are suppressing the knowledge of God in unrighteousness, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. And so they forget the Lord their God, and they, uh, they serve they enslaved themselves to the Baals and the Asherah. And this reminds us of the statement where Jesus is having his little confrontation in John 8 with the Pharisees, and he talks about the fact that they are slaves, and they say, no, we're not slaves. We're of our father Abraham. We're free denying the fact that they're slaves of sin, they're slaves to their legalistic system, they're slaves to the Romans, all of these things, they are enslaved several different ways. And that's the same thing that happens. And we looked at passages in Romans 6 that when we follow our sin natures, then we are just enslaving ourselves to our own, our own sin nature. And in verse 8, we're told that God sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishathai, Kushan of the double evil, the king of Mesopotamia. And I did a certain amount of work on that, and it's interesting what I didn't find, which was pointed out last time. I'll talk about that in a minute. And they served him for eight years. So here's our map. So the area where Kushan Rishathaim had his empire was in the area of Aram, Nah- Aram Naharaim, which is Aram of the two rivers. The two rivers are the Euphrates to the west and the Tigris to the east. And that's up here. This, is just, this map just shows the corner of it because what I want you to point out is uh, Othniel is in Devir, which is south of Hebron, and that's a long way from where this guy is. So it shows his power. He is really reaching out to expand his hegemony across the Middle East and to take control over the land of Canaan. Now, here's a larger picture. This is down here in the lower left over here. The, the dot on the map is Beersheba. And that is uh, not too far south of Hebron, which would be about here. So we see how this is. Now, what we see here in this map, because it talks, it is illustrating the travels of 
Abraham and later uh, Isaac. And so you see these areas here. You have Akkad. Babylon is down here. This is the area of Akkad. South of that is Sumer. Then you have up here Ur, an alternate Ur of the Chaldees. The one that we believe Abram came from is down here to the south. But here you have the, um, along this line here, this is the uh, Euphrates River. Then over here is the Tigris River. So they're under the control of Kushan Rishathaim, and and I've read in lots of different commentaries and everything, and and um, Vance came up last week after class, and he said, "What about Cush in Genesis 10?" And I looked at that, and it, it would be a name for that goes back to his ancestor. In Genesis 10.6, we read that Ham had four sons, Cush, Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew for Egypt, Put, which is identified with Libya, and Cush, which is uh, uh, identified uh, with, with Ethiopia, and Canaan. Then down in verse 8, we read that Cush begot Nimrod. Now, Nimrod is the, the first descendant of Noah who seeks to build his own empire. And he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And actually, that preposition ought to be translated as against the Lord. It has a, That's a trouble with prepositions. We went into that Sunday morning that they have a broad range of meaning. And sometimes um, we're not sure how they were used this early. So it's against the Lord, and the beginnings of his kingdom was what? What do we just saw it on the map? Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. All that area down there was called the land of Shinar. So that would indicate that his name is related to the area, uh, his historical background. He is a descendant of Cush, and he is Cush of the double evil king of Mesopotamia. So that really paints him as an extremely evil adversary to the people that God has called out because God, remember, called out Abram after the Tower of Babel incident and the failure of the nations, uh, the Gentiles, to, to, serve, uh, to serve God. And so we're told in verse 9 that when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, remember in our study... We looked at that Hebrew word, and it just means to sort of scream out in agony or pain from your suffering. It does not necessarily mean they cried out in repentance. They're not turning to God. That language is not used. It is used in a passage in Samuel, so maybe that was part of it. But the writer of Judges doesn't emphasize that, just says they cried out to the Lord. The emphasis is on the grace of God. They are not really turning to him, but they are crying to him to deliver them, and he provides a deliverer. And in the, you have the word deliverer, the noun, here at this point in the passage, and then you have the verb who delivered them in the next line. This word, they're not related words. This word is Moshiach, which is related to 
Uh, it's related to uh, uh, Messiah and the appointed one. Deliver the children of Israel who delivered them, and this is Yasha, uh, who, which is related to Yeshua or Joshua, which is the name of Jesus to bring deliverance or salvation. God has brought discipline on them because God uh, understands that what is necessary to teach people right and wrong because our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things is that they have to suffer negative consequences for their actions just as parents need to be training children and that means at times they need to be spanked not in an abusive way but in an objective unemotional way and other punishments are are used as well where they realize that for committing certain acts, they will suffer harsh negative consequences because in life that is exactly uh, what will happen. And God disciplines us. Uh, Hebrews 12.5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not despise the chastening That is a strong word for discipline. Uh, Despise the chastening of the Lord. No, be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. I find that a problem with a lot of people today is they're so self-absorbed that they cannot handle being rebuked by anyone because they were never rebuked by their parents. And so whenever someone says, you can't do that, that's wrong, they get all offended and they get all upset because they've never been taught right from wrong and that they don't have a right to just live on the basis of their own arrogance and self-absorption. And the first thing that happens when you start reading the Bible is that you get rebuked that that's one of the reasons that we're given the Scripture, that it's been breathed out uh, by God for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. So that's what's there. It teaches us. The first thing in that four lists there is teaching and reproof. Reproof means you're wrong, and you better suck it up, buttercup, and accept the fact that you're wrong sometime and not try to rationalize it. And that's a problem with a lot of people is they just don't want to admit that they're wrong. They're just filled with their own self-importance. So teaching, the instruction of Scripture is going to rebuke or reprove people, and then they are going to be instructed, and they're going to be corrected and then instructed on the path of righteousness. And that follows a pretty good pattern for, for parental training for children. And God does the same thing. He chastens us. He rebukes us. And so we're not to be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every man whom he receives. The word for scourging is the idea of being whipped with a Roman flagellum. It brings pain. The trouble today is parents don't love their children if they don't discipline them. If there are not harsh consequences for harsh, wrong actions that are where the punishment fits the infraction, then they will not 
grow up to be self-controlled. And if parents can't teach that self-discipline to their children, then they don't love their children. They love themselves too much. They're too involved with their jobs. They're too involved with what they're watching on TV. They're too involved with their own entertainment and their own issues to take the time to truly, objectively, fairly, non-abusively train their children. And at times they need harsh discipline. That's exactly how God uh, trains us. And that's how he's teaching Israel. And they just get worse and worse. But for a while, they will straighten up. So they cried out to God, and God raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And then in verse 10, we're told for the first time of about six, or four judges, I believe. Jews more than that, but four judges. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the phrase there is that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And the Hebrew word is a preposition. You're just getting so much good grammar. All these prepositions. I remember in the seventh grade and eighth grade and ninth grade in English that we had to memorize the chart with all of the English prepositions. I hope you all had the same wonderful experience. And so the word all has the idea of upon or over or above something. It's related to uh, various other phrases in the Hebrew that all have to do with going up on a high place, something like that. But what it describes here is different from if the preposition were the Hebrew word. It's just a, it's just a single letter, b. That means in. It's comparable to what we studied on Sunday morning with being baptized by means of the Spirit. But book can mean into someone or inside someone. But the Spirit of God doesn't come into them, comes upon them, which indicates he is not indwelling them or filling them. He is empowering them from an external position and he's empowering them for specific tasks, not for his spiritual life, but for his ability and militarily to defeat the enemy of Israel. And this is what we'll find as we go through our study of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, is that in the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit's role with the believer wasn't related to their sanctification. It's not related to their spiritual life, their spiritual growth. It's related to the functions of leadership within the theocracy of Israel. You had prophets who were, uh, who had the Holy Spirit come upon them. You had kings that had the Holy Spirit come upon them. You had uh, the those who built and made the furniture for the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave them wisdom, but he's not inside them. You get the same kind of thing when Saul is, uh, is oppressed by 
an evil spirit. The evil spirit doesn't go in Saul. It's not demon possession. It is upon Saul. It's an external-based oppression. So we'll look at all these different things as we go through this little, little study. And as a result of that, he is able to overpower the enemy, Azaz. Uh, this word has the idea of prevailing in a war or in a struggle, according to the theological word book of the of the Old Testament. Then we see in verse. Oh, well, these are just several examples. We see that the Spirit of the Lord does this for several of the judges. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. Next, we're going to look at Ehud, and the Spirit of the Lord does not come upon Ehud. And then we see Deborah and Barak. We don't see a suggestion of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit, Ruach, is not used there. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That's in Judges chapter 6. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah in Judges 11.29. And then in 13, 25, 14, 6, 14, 19, and 15, 14, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson four different times and gives him physical strength to overpower his enemies. So understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and it's not like what we have in the New Testament, is important. So we're going to take some time starting tonight to work our way through and understand the role of God, the Holy Spirit. So what does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Now, when it comes to understanding the Holy Spirit in the, in the Old Testament, it's difficult for us to put ourselves in the place of Moses or in the place of Sam, Samuel, who's probably the one who wrote the book of Judges, or to put ourselves in the place of, of a David or Isaiah or Daniel. How do we look at God the Holy Spirit? Because there's not a lot revealed about him. By the time you get to Daniel, Daniel would have had a large part of the Hebrew Scriptures written, and so he would have understood a lot about the Spirit of God. But the earlier ones did not have a lot uh, that was written. And typically, when you see a, a pastor or theologian who's writing on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, they talk about the New Testament. And I'll be talking, first of all, about the New Testament, but we have to shape our thinking why we're doing that. Um, it's helpful to just block out New Testament when we read these passages to try to understand what they were witnessing and what was going on at their time because, like I said, they don't have... They can't go to the bookshelf and pull off uh, Chafer's uh, fourth volume, I think it is, on pneumatology. They can't go to... Uh, their categorical Bible notebook and look up the various doctrines on the Holy Spirit, most of which come out of the New Testament. They don't know anything about the baptism by the Spirit. They don't know anything by, about the filling by the Holy Spirit. They don't know anything about the sealing by the Holy Spirit. 
They don't know anything about spiritual gifts. They don't have anything like that in the Old Testament. So what's going on here with the Holy Spirit? Why is he important? And, of course, in the Old Testament, I believe, and and, um, I was last year when I was at... um, at pre-trib, I was scanning the various book offerings on the Ariel Ministries uh, book table, and I noticed a book by a guy named John Metzger, who has gotten to be um, uh, do some work with with Ariel, and he has spent a lifetime because I got a book of his that's about eight and a half by eleven, and probably three-quarters of an inch thick on the on the Trinity in the Old Testament. Now he's completed a book that is about the size of your Bible, but it's twice as thick on the unity of God in the Old Testament. And he has spent a lifetime studying through rabbinical literature, old rabbinical literature, not stuff that's come along since about the fifth, since about the fifth century AD. And he has compiled an enormous amount of material demonstrating that in the pre-Christian era, before the first century, that it was commonly understood by Jewish teachers and leaders that there was a plurality in the Godhead. They did not have a view of a singular Unitarian deity. That came after Christ came along and said, I and the Father are one. Okay, they decided that that had to be wrong because Jesus said it, so um, they insisted in a Unitarian uh, God. There were no sons of God. There were no uh, other persons in the Godhead. And he's just done a masterful work, and he's brought out a lot of interesting and fascinating things. And uh, I've been looking at different passages and developing out my understanding of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So there'll be a lot of things here you need to hear again, and there's a few new things. So that's what we want to do is look at how a first-century Jew would understand the use of the term Holy Spirit if there were no uh, prior references to him in the Hebrew Scripture. Now listen to what I just said. You're a first century Jew. You go out to the Jordan River. This guy comes up, and he's dressed in a hairy garment, wrapped a camel's hair coat, and he's announcing that the kingdom's going to come and that you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's interrupted by this other guy that comes walking down to the water to be baptized by him. And when John looks at him, he says, I, I'm not going to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, I need to be baptized by you. We read through those passages on, on Sunday morning. And so when this, when this happens, John says, I baptize you by means of water, but the one who comes after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to buckle, he will baptize you by means of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and by means of fire. Now, did those people who were listening to John say, Holy Spirit, what's that? 
And did they have to spend time explaining to those Jews that were down there what the Holy Spirit was? They didn't because they had a background. They understood exactly what John was talking about. Now, I've had questions because we understand what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is and why it is. I don't think John understood that. All he knows is all that's been revealed to him is that Jesus is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, and in the future he will baptize by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know how, when, where, why. He just knows that that's true, and so he's going to announce it. So what I thought we would do to start off is just look at these introductory uses of the Holy Spirit in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because when they start off and when they were written, they, they never explained the kingdom. Why don't they explain the kingdom? Because their audience was well taught in the Old Testament and knew exactly what the kingdom was that they were talking about. It was the messianic kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. The king was promised to be a descendant of David in the Old Testament, that the kingdom, there were all kinds of passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets about the glories of this kingdom. And so nobody needed to explain what the kingdom was that John the Baptist was talking about. Same thing with baptism. When he said that he baptized uh, with water, but I mean, excuse me, the Holy Spirit, that when he said he baptized with water, but the one who came after him would baptize by means of the Holy Spirit, he didn't have to explain who the Holy Spirit was. They understood. Look at these examples. Matthew. First use of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Matthew 1.18. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, I made a point the other day that we can't properly use the term baptism of the Spirit. We've all heard that. I've heard that from lots of different people, and every now and then it slips out of my mouth. But technically, it's baptism by the Spirit because the of the phrase is a genitival phrase of source or possession or relationship. Many other categories, but those are the broad categories. So this is, a, this is, this Holy Spirit here is in the genitive. The child is from the Holy Spirit. It's that preposition ek in the Greek, meaning from or out from. So she was found with child from the source of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who enabled her to be pregnant. Nobody's asking the question. There's no explanation of who the Holy Spirit is. Matthew one twenty. Uh, Joseph, after the angel Gabriel has appeared to him, uh, or this is right before the angel appears to him, he's thinking about the fact that, oh, I'm betrothed to this woman. Now she's pregnant. How am I going to handle this? And uh, he knows it's not his fault, but he doesn't know whether to accuse her or, or what to do. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is, uses that same phrase in the Greek again, ek pneumatos hagiu, of the Holy Spirit. So it's produced by the Holy Spirit. And then the third time it's used is the passage we looked at Sunday morning, Matthew 3.11. 
I indeed, or I on the one hand, baptize or identify you by means of water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize, that is, identify you by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now we understand what what that's all about. Isn't it remarkable that all these statements are made about the Holy Spirit? Nobody explains what it is, not one place. Gospel of Mark. First three times the Holy Spirit is mentioned is in the first chapter right off the bat. Mark, who's writing to Gentiles, doesn't stop to explain it. He assumes people know who the Holy Spirit is. I indeed baptize you by means of water. This is his more succinct phrase. I indeed baptize you by means of water, but he will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. In Mark 1.10, and immediately coming up from the water, as Jesus came up from the water, uh, he, that is Jesus, saw the heavens above parting, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, depend, descended upon him like a dove. And then, of course, the Father is going to speak and uh, say that this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So the Spirit descends like a dove. Mark one twelve. immediately after this, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. In Luke, we read, uh, the prophecy made, um, or the statement made by the angel uh, in Luke 1 for he, about the birth of Jesus said, no, 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 this is about the birth of John the Baptist, sorry. Uh, this is the angel talking to Zechariah, telling him that he's going to have a child, that, that Elizabeth is going to become pregnant. And he says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled, and it's, a, it's that same prepositional phrase, ek. So it's not filled of the Spirit or by the Spirit. It is different. It is from the Spirit. And it's a different word from filling than what you have in Ephesians 5.18. So it's not talking about the church age filling by means of the Spirit. You're filled from the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And the angel answered and said to her, This is the angel announcing the birth to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest, that is God's omnipotence, will overshadow you. And therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Third passage is about Elizabeth when uh, she's pregnant with John the Baptist and he leaps in her womb when he, uh, when Mary comes, and Elizabeth uh, is filled from the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth is filled from the Holy Spirit. So none of this is what we talk about in terms of the filling from the Spirit. It's a different word for filling. It's a word based on pimplemi, not a word based on plerao. So you have all of this, and in John one twelve, John says about Jesus being baptized, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. Doesn't explain it. Goes on to say, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes by means of the Holy Spirit. The next time, next passage is John 3, 5, when Jesus is explaining the importance of being born again to Nicodemus. 
And he talks about the fact that you need to be born twice, born of water. That relates to physical birth. And the second is a birth that is brought about by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. That it is uh, through the renewal of the Holy Spirit that we are born again. Uh, one who, Unless you is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, born by, you know, from the Spirit, from the source of the Spirit, is Spirit. And then it's described with a wind. See, the word for wind, both Hebrew and Greek are this way. There are a lot of meanings to the Hebrew word ruach, which is the word that is translated spirit. It can mean wind or breath. In a few places, it means thought. Can you see thought? You can't see thought. Can you see wind? Can't see wind. Can you see a soul or a human spirit? No, can't see that. So the wind is anal- it's analogous to wind because it's invisible, but you see its effects. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone born uh, from the Spirit. So my point is that at the beginning of the New Testament, in these initial events that occurred, we are told that they talked about the Holy Spirit, they talked about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to Jesus and the importance of the Holy Spirit for regeneration, and they never explained it to anybody. So that means that the Old Testament clearly gave enough information so that uh, Jews were expected to understand that there was more than one person in the Godhead. There's the Father and the Spirit, And as we'll see when we get to the Messiah passages, uh, these various Messianic passages in Isaiah, that you have the Son speaking to the Father with reference to the Spirit. So there's a clear indication of three distinct divine persons in the Old Testament. So the first question, this is such an important issue It is not one that we think of in our generation as being that important because it's not really, it's not really stated that much by those who are attacking Christianity. They've been able to move on. But in the previous generation, the first half of the 20th century, this was a major issue because you, it it was generated ultimately by Unitarians who depersonalized the Spirit. They just said that the phrase Spirit of God, that was just another way of talking about about God. And it's not indicating a distinct person. So the question is, what is the Holy Spirit? Is he a person? Or is he a force? Or is he an influence? And some people take take it that way that he is a that he is just an, an influence. Well, when we look at Matthew 3.16, at the time when Jesus is, is baptized, we see that there are three distinct persons indicated. When he had been baptized, Jesus. So right there we know that the he refers to Jesus, and Jesus is a distinct 
person in his hypostatic union in his human body. Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. So this is the another person that's indicated as deity, the Spirit of God, as a separate and distinct person, distinct from Jesus. In verse 17, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So in Christ's baptism, you clearly see three distinct persons. Now, there's another incident that comes along uh, halfway through, or actually near the end of Jesus' uh, life, as he's been teaching about the kingdom in the future and told his disciples that that, uh, some of them would see the kingdom And then a few days later, he took uh, Peter and James and John with him up on a mountain. We don't know which one it was. And there they saw Jesus revealed in his glory. And then Moses and Elijah appeared. You remember the story. And Peter of the loud mouth, who starts talking before he can think things through, said, well, let me build some Sukkot, some some, uh, uh, shelters for Elijah, and for uh, Moses. Now, why did he do that? Well, because the Feast of Sukkot, are call, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, that this was to picture God's provision for Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. And so Peter partly gets it. Ah, these guys are here. It's the Kingdom. Let's build our Sukkot. But Then he starts talking about, and his voice just runs away with him, and God is going to interrupt him and speak from heaven. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly, so they're just enveloped in this Shekinah glory cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased hear him. That sort of had the nuance of shut up and listen, Peter. So that's God's speaking. So they heard God's voice. In both places, if they had had a little MP3 recorder, they could have recorded the voice of God. And we could listen to God because God is real. He's objective reality. He's not just some phantasm in somebody's mind. Then we come to the end of Matthew, and Jesus is giving his parting instructions to the disciples and he says go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit indicating that there are three distinct persons there that are all involved in the life of a believer because at the baptism by the spirit when we are baptized physically, literally, in water, it is a depiction of that abstract doctrine of positional truth that most people don't get. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had had 2,000 years of correct biblical instruction at water baptism saying this is a picture of what God the Holy Spirit is, is used to do when 
you're saved, Jesus used the Spirit to identify you with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's depicted here as I use the water to, I, to illustrate this and this person's baptism by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that never happens and everybody's confused about baptism. So because the Holy Spirit is mentioned there as equal to the Father and the Son... And then at the end of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul concludes by saying the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Grace from the Lord Jesus Christ, love from God the Father, and the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. And then 1 Peter 1, 2, where Peter in his opening remarks to, the, to his readers, elect or choice ones according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So he mentions the role of the Father, the role of the Holy Spirit, and the role of God the Son in his uh, opening salutation in 1 Peter. So all of that indicates that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. Now, how do we know that the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, he has the characteristics of a person. And I like to put the verses up here because if you read systematic theologies because if they put all the verses in, in the books, those books would take up 50, 100 more pages. And then you would have a lot of cost and the book would be heavy. And so they always put all these verses in there. Most people just say, okay, whatever. Well, we need to see what the verses are. So John 14 and 15, this is the upper room discourse Jesus and the disciples are leaving the upper room and they are walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't know exactly when they left, but along the way they're walking and he's teaching them. And he says that he's going to leave. And that's when Philip said, well, or Peter said, well, Lord, where are you going and how do we know the way? And Jesus said, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then Philip said, well, show us the Father. And Jesus looked at him. How long have you been with me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he goes on to teach them. And in verse 16, he says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word another indicates another of the same kind. He, referring to himself, he's one helper, God the Holy Spirit is the other, the parakletos, that he may abide with you forever. It's personal. It is a person who will abide with you ever, just as Jesus is a person. They're another of the same kind. But when the helper comes, he says in John 15, still in the upper room discourse, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you. So here we see Jesus sending in a position, he has authority over the Holy Spirit. He is sending the uh, Holy Spirit. So the Father sends in fourteen sixteen, and the Son sends in John fifteen twenty six. 
But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He will, be a, he will witness of me. That's something only a person can do, something with mind, will, and volition. Somebody can, can uh, make clear to a person. He has volition. He has will. In John, uh, I mean, in Acts sixteen seven, after they, that's Paul and Luke, after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia. Now, Mycenae is one of those er- areas or regions in what is now modern Turkey. Uh, Bithynia was up to the northeast of that, and so he's on a walk in the highway there, and the Holy Spirit won't let him go into Asia won't let him go into Mycenae, won't let him go into Bithynia. Somehow the Holy Spirit did not permit him. That is the Holy Spirit exercising will. 1 Corinthians twelve eleven is the clearest, but one and the same Spirit works all these things. That is the spiritual gifts, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, of course, he's in accordance with the Father and the Son, but this is a volitional act on the part of the Spirit. That makes the Holy Spirit a person. <clears throat> in John 16, uh, 20, 16 14, we, ha- we read it, he, he will glorify me, Jesus says, of the Spirit. And he uses a masculine pronoun. Now, the word for spirit is a neuter. Pneuma is a neuter noun. So the spirit was not gender confused. Neither was Jesus because the spirit is a person. So he is referred to with a masculine pronoun. That's bad grammar, but it's accurate theology. He will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you indicating the role of the Spirit is related to revelation. John fourteen twenty six, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he, masculine singular pronoun, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And in John fifteen twenty six, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds... From the Father, he, again, a masculine singular pronoun, will testify of me. And so we see the various actions of the Holy Spirit. And I think I'm going to stop here because we'll get into these next actions. And then I want to move from there into the Old Testament, tracing what God the Holy Spirit did uh, during the uh, Old Testament. We'll look at the Pentateuch and then we'll go into the early prophets and then into the later prophets uh, going uh, through time, as it were, to see the progress of revelation of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Thank you that you have revealed yourself so clearly to us in your word and that it is God the Holy Spirit who revealed your word, God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, God the Holy Spirit who enables us to and enlightens us that we may be able to understand your word. Not that it is simple, not that it's magical, but it takes time and study. And you enlighten us as to what 
the text means. Thank you for these things and for all that you have given us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.